Hey everyone, it's Matt here. We're doing something a little different this month because we got SER coming up. We wanted to release uh, an interview that Haley and I did with Dr. Nancy Krieger, which follows along very nicely with some of the talks that'll be going on with SER. So this one's just gonna be a straight interview. We hope you enjoy it. So we are delighted today to welcome Dr. Nancy Krieger to the podcast to talk about the role of theory in epidemiologic research. Dr. Krieger is a professor of social epidemiology in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and is also the director of the Harvard School of Public Health Interdisciplinary Concentration on Women, Gender, and Health. She has been a member of the school's faculty since 1995, and she is an internationally recognized social epidemiologist with a background in biochemistry, philosophy of science, and history of public health, in addition to 30-plus years of activism involving social justice, science, and health. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Krieger. Thank you very much for having me. So we're delighted to chat with you today, particularly about the role of theory in epidemiology. And so much of this, for me, the interest in in talking with you comes out of the book that you wrote, which is Epidemiology and the People's Health Theory and Context, which is a a book that I hadn't read until uh, Ellie Murray had her book club series a few years ago. And I was really pleased that I did because it really changed a lot of the way both that I I think about theory in, in epidemiology and also the way that I I teach my students. And so just to start us off, can you talk a little bit about what the book is about and why it is that you wrote the book? So as the book says in its subtitle, it's about theory and context for understanding epidemiology and the people's health. And the reason I wrote it is that it grew out of a course that I've taught for many years where I was teaching materials I wish I had been taught when I was being trained epidemiology, which was to know more about the history of my field and about the ways that people theorize population health in order to study it. Epidemiology, like any science, has its theories. Whether they are said explicitly or implicitly is another question entirely. And there are different kinds of theories. Obviously, we, because we are a quantitative science, rely heavily on statistical theory, for example, which draws on mathematical theories. We draw on a lot of different biological theories because we study health phenomena. But there's theory that's specific to epidemiology, which are theories of disease distribution. And understanding what those are, separate from what we might need to know theoretically and empirically about mechanisms of disease causation, about pathophysiology and all the rest, we need to understand something about what the theories are for disease distribution itself, like other population phenomena. And there are other population sciences, whether or not they concern humans. There's a lot in ecology, for example, but there's also sociology. There's many options for theorists fields that have very explicit attention to the kinds of theoretical frameworks. But what happened in epidemiology is I think that there had been such dominance um, in the least second half of the 20th century from a biomedical standpoint that it was as if epidemiologic theory went out the window And all you did was have lots of data, which you crunched using appropriate programs because mass computing became more possible. And the theories about articulating what accounts for population distributions of disease and also especially health inequities just became much less a visible focus. It became assumed that you just could talk about lifestyle, which only really starts showing up in the literature in the 70s. And I can go on at length about this, but the point was is that any science 
has its fundamental theories that are specific to its domain, what it needs to explain, what it's trying to predict, what it's trying to interpret. And in the case of epidemiology, like many other population sciences, it's reflexive, which means it's trying to change that which it observes. So it's not as if you go, oh, that's the infant mortality rate. How interesting. You're also trying to gain knowledge in order to change the infant mortality rate and to change, for example, inequities in the infant mortality rate. And inequities mean very specifically differences in health status between social groups that are by definition unjust, preventable, and in principle can be stopped. And so you mentioned that there is this difference between thinking about theories of disease causation and disease distribution. Is it your feeling that we do better in terms of theories of causation than we do in terms of disease distribution? Or are those both areas that we really need to be thinking more about as epidemiologists? There are always areas that both are needed more attention, but I do think that an emphasis has been on the causation and not so much the distribution. So to give a very uh, easy example, think about tobacco and lung cancer. So probably what tobacco was doing to the lungs, plus or minus various new additives in the 1930s is similar to what it's doing now. However, who smokes and what the distribution has become of who smokes is very different. So it used to be much more if you look in the US or UK context in particular, and this is still true for some of the countries in the world, you would find in the earlier period that actually smoking was, um, after having is particularly been introduced as a mass phenomenon in World War I in terms of cigarettes being distributed to the troops, is you have much more likely that people with more education and more professional were likely to smoke. And then it became and it shifted, the class gradient shifted over time. How do you understand that? It's the same disease. And it's the same disease mechanism, but the societal distribution changed dramatically. How do you understand what happened with regard to the introduction and the promotion of smoking among women in different societies at different times? So a theory of disease distribution is going to be dealing with the phenomenon of what is affecting the distribution of the outcomes of interest. And that also means looking at who and what is shaping the exposures of interest and how it's changing over time. And place and by social group and by the many things. I mean, you think about epidemiology classically being about time, place, and person. I've suggested instead it's actually about time, place, and social group because people are never just simply individuals. We are always simultaneously members of our society as well as being the quirky individuals that we are. I can't help but think in distributions. Where do people fall, the individuals, in those distributions? And why is it slanted for some? to be much more concentrated in the, in the extremes of deprivation and suffering. You know, it's interesting to me because I think what, you're, what you said there was that we do better in terms of theories of disease causation than disease distribution. My sense is actually we, we struggle a bit when it comes to actually disease causation as well in that, at least in my training, we never had explicit courses on theories of, of disease causation. And it was just sort of left to, I, I don't want to say it wasn't, it wasn't covered at all, but we didn't spend a lot of time on thinking it through. We spent much more time on how do you design a study? How do you, as you say, crunch the crunch the numbers and uh, appropriately come to a conclusion and not think about the mechanisms by which the disease is occurring? Smoking, as you, as you point out, is a really good example where we did. It Although seems to, to, be th- fair, to be fair, smoking for a while was quite black boxed in mm-hmm. terms of how. But part of where the mechanism, even if the exact biology is, for example, not known, 
one of the things that's really important is that epidemiologists do, or at least are supposed to, think about etiologic period and think about how long it takes and think about the different models that were developed for the two-stage model of cancer, for example, the two-hit model, what it would take to actually go from an exposure to getting something that became an actual tumor that became invasive, or what, what is the latency period for the different mm -hmm. tobacco, for example, for different kinds of outcomes. And I think within epidemiology, certainly infectious disease epidemiology had, is, has its models, and we're seeing them in play now very strongly with COVID-19, to think about how epidemics course through a population. But those by themselves don't, again, give the principles for thinking who is more affected than others. Why do you, again, get inequities? So I think that it's really important to bring back this notion that it's not just about population health in general. It's actually about the real distributions amongst the populations in real societies that they are. And changing, and that's why, you know, over the past decade or so, there's become much greater awareness that one has to simultaneously say one needs to be focused on improving population health and reducing or eliminating health inequities. They're not the same thing. You can have everybody's mortality rates decline in concert with one another, but do nothing to actually eliminate or reduce the inequities in rates between social groups. So it's a both and, not an either or. And that's a part what theories of disease distribution and a critical awareness of them helps understand why certain theories come to the fore and are dominant, and that there are usually contested theories at every given time. Tomorrow, for example, I teach the second session, uh, second, no, third session, actually, of my class. One loses track of time, <laughs> and in this time of COVID, one really loses track of time. And actually, a big part of it is about the emergence of epidemiology as a field. And that was in part in relation to infectious disease, but also the change to industrialization and having urban working class. And also very much the miasma versus contagion debates. And I'm already looking at my students' reflection pieces and they had A, no idea those debates happened. And B, there's a complete new salience for understanding why you would have the different economic interests behind the miasma versus the contagion. So the miasma were very much often the anti-quarantine people. Quarantine meant stopping ships of support and having major costs for business. Business did not like that. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. when, I, when I hear you talk about the importance of distribution, I'm really struck by something Matt and I have talked about earlier, which is the role and importance of descriptive epi and how challenging it can be to study these um, distributions in our population. And so I guess I would be interested to know, in addition to having a greater understanding of the theories and the social factors that play into this, these uh, understandings, how can we do better at describing um, these phenomena that we're interested in studying? Well, so in any science, you have to have a lot of observations. Observations happen because people think about them and decide to record the data. Data don't just fall from either A, the sky, or B, computers. Something, somebody is constructing ideas somewhere. Not that the data are whatever what you want. You can't make them up. If you do, you're a very bad scientist. But what <laughs> happens is that descriptive, descriptive is often said almost as if it were lesser and pejorative. Yes, agreed. I agree. The fundamental of the, if, if we are not keeping track of who is dying of what at what rates, who is getting ill at what at what rates, you don't know that new things are happening. You don't know if problems are receding or getting worse. And I think you can see a perfect example of that with regard to the absolutely horrific data that are available and above all not available for COVID-19. So for example, it's both what data were being recorded. If you look at the original CDC report, report forms for the testing, they were supposed to have data on race, ethnicity, among 
other things, and even zip code. Did that show up in any of the dashboards? Just about none. And so there was been very hard, and it continues to be very hard, to actually do a good job of monitoring at the population level what the inequities are with regard to COVID-19. And then you add to that the complexities, and this is where epidemiologists, you know, they're employed in lots of different state health departments. The first ones started being employed by health, state health departments in the early 1900s in the United States. And we have in the US at least a very fragmented system, but they're supposed to be reporting and coherence that goes ultimately to the CDC. That's why people spend such a long time in figuring out the standard death certificate, the standard birth certificate, reporting forms, we pay a lot of attention to nosology, to classification. That's really, really important. That's how you understand if there are new phenomena that are suddenly happening, that things are like, wow, something is different versus just going on at the usual rate. And so that's fundamental work to epidemiology, monitoring the health of populations and monitoring the magnitude of health inequities. It also is fundamental to try to understand why you do need analytical epidemiology that is testing hypotheses to explain what's going on. But first, you actually have to have reasonable data as to what is going on. And if you don't pay attention to what's really going on in the population, I mean, you can be doing very interesting work, but it's not going to be improving population health in the way of understanding what the health is of that population. And I mean, it can be quite, you know, alarming when you can just ask people, well, do you know what the rate of mortality is from cancer or from my look at breast cancer, breast cancer, or do you have any idea? I mean, when you look at the other part that's been absolutely astounding with COVID-19 is everyone is absolutely fixated on counts of cases. And it's like counts of cases, they matter, but if you're going to really understand them, it might be nice to either have A, a denominator, or B, a time period, and look at something like, oh, for example, a rate. But no, it's all counting. And then there's, of course, miscounting and misclassification and many other things like that. And epidemiologists can think fruitfully about that to figure out what the extent. So it's not just that you say, well, some data are lousy and others are better. You can actually think about the extent to which what kind of bias is affecting those data, and is your estimate likely to be conservative or inflated? And we have good ways to diagnose that and think about that. And that's really important in terms of coming up with accurate estimates, both of what we think are rates, as well as what we think are rate differences or rate ratios, as well as other parameters of interest that may be through much more sophisticated modeling. I love that response because I also feel that sometimes, or oftentimes actually, descriptive epidemiology is just looked upon as this simple task. And it's so enormously complicated. And, you know, it's such an understatement and does such a disservice to our whole field to consider analytic epidemiology or call inference better, let's say, than descriptive, because you need that descriptive information to move public health forward. Right. But what helps is, therefore, that's where the importance of theoretical frameworks is very important. What are you describing and what are you describing together? So, for example, going back to COVID-19, yes, it's important to have good descriptive data with regard to the racial ethnic groups, understanding also all the limitations behind how race ethnicity is conceptualized, categorized, defined, and operationalized in the United States. But that's not sufficient by itself. Where are the socioeconomic data? How do you look at racialized economic segregation? How do you understand the connections? Or people now use a language of intersectionality. To me, it's much more about the embodied integration of the multiple exposures and experiences that people have. We can have whatever ways we think about the world, but our bodies integrate them all individually and collectively every day in and out. And that's what we're studying. And that's crucial for understanding anything that would be resembling notions of quote unquote confounders, quote unquote effect modifiers, quote unquote colliders, 
quote unquote, you name it. To understand what those variables are, you need to actually have a clear theoretical understanding of the framework, what gets brought into play and what doesn't. Typically, when left to own devices in the dominant frameworks, biomedical and lifestyle, you end up with only individual level data. Well, clearly epidemiologists have been key also amongst others in using multi-level models and understanding that one needs to look at these multiple levels, that it also makes a difference to think about what is happening in state A versus state B, because guess what? The distributions are different. So what's different between them? And at the same time, doing that in a way that takes into account the biological processes that are relevant. So it's, for example, I've had discussions with some colleagues once in the government department who was like, well, we've all shown that race doesn't really, everybody's equal now, race shouldn't really matter. Why do we have to keep collecting it? It only, it only just reinforces and entrenches people's views that there's something about race. And you can understand that at the level of where if you're trying to reject simple notions of biological essentialism put in racial terms, you can understand why some people might want to do away with the categories. However, the thought experiment that I posed to her was that imagine you could, with a wave of the wand, it would be a very nice wand, you could eliminate all inequities immediately. Everyone suddenly in the United States, but you keep the same bodies that everybody has. Everyone is suddenly living in good housing with lots of green space, good fresh air, good schools, good jobs, no unnecessary adverse exposures, particularly adverse exposures that are happening because they benefit the economic well-being of those who are in charge of what those exposures are. Let's say you get rid of all that. You really have something, but everybody's in their same bodies. Would everybody have instantly the same health? No, because people embody what their experiences are. And if you're going to have equity, whether you want to use language of reparations or repair or however you want to frame it, need is not the same. Equity is about responding to need. It's not about everybody gets equal shares. And so if you do not understand that and do not have the right categories, and again, the theory is what helps you understand that, you do not know the questions to ask, the data to get for the observations, let alone try to figure out what the relevant causal pathways are. That's so helpful and it's really concrete. And to get even more concrete, can you talk a little bit about what you think some of the most dominant theories are in studying disease distribution, as well as whether you think there are any theories that are not dominant, but that maybe should be playing more of a role? So I think it's always important to remember that science is always a lively thing and there are different views happening at the same time. And even if you go back in history, you can't say, well, they should have known better because usually somebody did know better at that time. So, for example, you can look at the early, at the period of many people like to celebrate Jon Snow looking specifically only at waterborne transmission. He got in trouble later, as was documented by Lillian Feld, for only for so discounting the idea of miasma as being completely irrelevant as to become basically a, a witness for the tannery companies to say that their stink of the tanneries had no effect on health. And that's probably implausible given how noxious what it happens is in tanners. So the thing is, is to say, what are the different contending views and which may or may not be dominant? And so in the European and U.S. epidemiology since probably the 19, particularly since the 50s, but a little bit before, even though there were contending views back then, a dominant view has been a biomedical lifestyle, which is highly individualistic in its orientation and sees other phenomena as nuisances that get in the way of understanding real disease. And that basically disease distributions reflect people's genetic predisposition combined with their lousy lifestyle choices, so-called. And lifestyle choices is framed as if people have all equal choices and also equal ability to act on those choices. Everybody might like to have nice housing. Surprise, surprise, there's actually not enough affordable good housing in this country. Everyone might like to have a job. So why do you think there's an unemployment rate? 
I mean, so there are problems where you don't pay attention to the context and constraints in which people live and to which they're born and which they're constrained by active legal and illegal types of discrimination and et cetera. So the dominant types have been biomedical and lifestyle. And it's not to say they haven't had useful in observations. And certainly in terms of biomedical, you absolutely want to know about kinds of treatments that are important because you, if you fit sick, you would like to know that the treatment has been actually appropriately tested and isn't being rolled out, for example, at warp speed before anybody's had a chance to actually check the efficacy and safety, but minor details aside. But at the same time, what's not in that picture. So there's an entire set of alternative theories that could broadly be put under the social epidemiologic frame. And there is a variety of them. There's not just one. There's social production of disease, political economy of health. There's the eco-social theory of disease distribution that I've been developing since 1994. There are psychosocial theories. There are a variety of them. And what matters is to learn about them and to learn about them in ways that expand possibilities for doing more rigorous and better research. Because the whole emphasis here is the whole point is to do better science. It's not about doing politically correct science. It's about doing correct science. And part of how I teach is to show the huge problems that have happened when people have not paid attention to either the societal or biological processes at play. You need to pay attention to both together. And the biological is within the context of the larger ecosystems in which we live. So that's why I always emphasize the societal and ecological context. And as we can see now with the smoke all over the West Coast, in addition to everything else with regard to climate change going on right now, let alone the flooding, let alone everything else, if we don't have some clue, and a lot of epidemiology has taken a long time to wake up to the idea that humans live in ecological context, that's there in environmental health, but not often as tied to the social context. So what's happened is with work that's moved forward on issues of both environmental justice and climate justice, that kind of awareness has begun to increase more, which is a good thing. But a lot of times, even in the social epidemiology, the ecological world disappeared from view and it became only social. And that's not the world we live in either. So instead, understanding the importance of what's going on around environmental degradation, as well as climate change, really matters. And how much do you think that the theories that we're using, as you mentioned, the biomedical model is so much of what dominates funded research out of, say, the National Institutes of Health. How much do you think that that is part of the reason why we don't pay enough attention to both distributions of disease and also that we frame everything in terms of the biomedical model is because that is where the current main source of funding is for a lot of health research. It's not the only, but it's one of the biggest. So a number of years ago, I did a review of what NIH-funded grants are, and you could look in terms of what would have, just to make the terms contrasting, social epidemiologic kinds of terms versus genetic biomedical types of terms, and it's overwhelmingly to the side of what is the biology of disease. And again, there's a real place for that, and particularly in the case of medicine with regard to treatments. But epidemiology is also fundamentally geared to prevention, and prevention requires understanding things at the multiple levels that go well beyond the individual body and the biology concern, but to also looking at the societal determinants, as it were, determination of what the exposures are. And what are those exposures? They are a range of biophysical exposures, and they are a range of economic exposures, and they are a range of social exposures. So that needs more funding. 
There's no question about it. And the thing is, is that scientists reflect who, at this point, who was able to get an education, who was able to rise to the ranks to become NIH reviewers, to become leaders in the fields. I think that's beginning to change in terms of some of the life experiences that people are bringing to the table, whether in terms of economic, racial, ethnic, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, and being more open about what that means. But I would also really want to emphasize that it absolutely that kind of diversity and representation is important, but that's not equivalent to what the frameworks are that people use for their thinking. So it's really important to understand that there's a distinction between life experiences and expertise. Everyone, particularly everyone who is in school and becomes an epidemiologist, knows how to read, knows how to learn, and can learn the relevant histories that are about the inequities in our society and the drivers of those inequities and figure out how that relates to the research. It's not only lived experience. Lived experience matters, but it's everyone's responsibility to know something about the populations whom they are studying and of whom they are a part. It's incredibly helpful to to think about it in those terms. Given that so much of the funding is for the biomedical type research, it seems like one of the one of the avenues towards changing the way that we think about theory and the way that we think about what it is that we want to focus on for our research is through education. It's through what we choose to teach in epidemiology programs. And I'm curious, where in the curriculum does theory come in, in as you see it, and you know, should that change? I mean, certainly in my school, I've been there for a while and I've advocated for this. So the course that I teach is now required not only for all the doctoral students in my department, but for the Population Health Sciences PhD program, which is a relatively new program. It's about five years old now. And so that means that that's what I'm in the thick of teaching right now. That means that I have doctoral students from across five different departments, whether or not they had any interest in this, all of a sudden finding out that they're learning about it, and then bringing in their many different experiences because it's environmental health and nutrition and epi and social behavioral sciences, et cetera, global health and population. So it's, so it's a good mix, and it leads to very rich discussion as a result. So that's required in their first uh, fall of their first term. And there are other schools which have people beginning to teach these kinds of courses more. I know that there will be a session on this that will be at the SCR conference this coming December that I'll participate in. And there have been waves of interest before. Certainly, I also, one of the foci of the Spirit of 1848 caucus that I helped co-found and chair for American Public Health Association has always had pedagogy as one of its foci of how do we teach? How do we teach better, teach in ways that reflect these expertise and values that I'm discussing? And so there have been people who've talked there about some of the kinds of courses they're trying to teach. But I think that if you're going to be a population health science, which many in epidemiology seem to embrace as a term, it helps to understand something deeply about A, what is a population? B, what is the science? And theory has a lot to say about both of those. Well, in in some ways, and and again, I didn't think about this too much until I read your book, but it seems to me strange that we don't actually start off public health curriculum, epidemiology in particular, with an understanding of theories of disease. Right. But there I would note that the very first epi textbook, as it was, um, Uses of Epidemiology by Jeremy Morris in the 1950s, did. Mm. And if you look at you know, Greenwood's Mass Epidemic Crowd Diseases, his book, you look at Sid and Stricker's books in the 1930s, they did articulate it. Partly there was also much less A, computing science capabilities back then. I mean, yes, there's the Hollerith machine for the census, but that's not the same. And there was also much less biological knowledge and people weren't poking around at computers able to easily at an instant run a program. But what happened was that there was a shift and part of that shift has been in what has been considered 
been called quote unquote modern epidemiology. You always have to worry when something is called modern and because it's usually dismissive of anything that's thought to be quote unquote pre-modern and as if that's just all knowledge that can now be completely discarded, which is not a particularly helpful way of understanding science or the world. So what happened is that in that shift, where it became basically that it was epidemiology began to start to be reduced to number crunching of data that happened to be about health, as opposed to being a science that was about population distributions of disease, that's where you watch the textbook shift. So the older textbooks used to have more theory, they used to have more history of the field, and then that gets lost. And that was part of what I documented in my very first paper back in 1994, in Epidemiology and the Web of Causation, Has Anyone Seen the Spider? Because I was alarmed. I was doing a lot of reading, and it was, it used to be there, and it's not. And the thing is, is that it's not like a science just sort of somehow forgets its past. That actively has to be not considered important. That response um, brings up a question in my mind because I'm teaching an introductory epidemiology course this semester. And, and in the first lecture, I covered some of what I would call the historical examples of uh, John Snow and, and cholera and Semmelweis and childbed fever, some of the topics you've mentioned. And both of those occurred at a time where many people did think diseases were caused by miasmas. And that's different than how we largely view disease today. So clearly theories can change over over time. And I'm curious about your thoughts on how we know any theory is valid and whether our, our current understanding is limited by the theories that we have to work with today. Theories in part tell you what to look at and also what you allegedly have license to ignore. And that may or not work, be true or work out that well when it comes to health. So the thing is, is that actually both the theories of miasma and contagion became ultimately refuted by germ theory. The reasons for that was that miasma was about poisons floating in the air, which still works for toxic air exposures. I mean, there are poisons that do float, we call it air pollution, but they don't replicate. They're not living beings. Contagion also was about a poison. It was about a poison that just passed from person to person or a poison that was left on a fomite, a doorknob, toilet seat, whatever, and passed to the other person. Germ theory was very different because it was actually about living microbes. It was making the little world inside the body all of a sudden have dramatic population effects. So those are examples of two theories that in effect got superseded and tossed. The language remains, contagion still remains in many ways, but it's really important to understand the profound difference between a theory of contagion that involves little microbes, which by the way, you can carry and you can travel from point A to point B and not be sick. And then you can end up with spread, which was explaining things that neither of those other theories could. You never just test a theory. Theories are generative of lots of hypotheses. And if you get to the point where the hypotheses are no longer productive and they're not helping you predict or explain, you've got a problem on your hands. So that's true, not just in epidemiology, that's true in different fields. And you can look, and the thing is, is that it's always important and useful to look at other fields of science where there are major disputes. I mean, ecology has gone through a variety of different waves of different theories about succession of animals, plants, and ecosystems. Why does it happen? And where, do, where is attention viewed? So there are, it's not like epidemiology is uniquely fractious in this way. It's just, this is typical for sciences and typical of people. I think the key point about what happens in science is that our, it's meant to be public knowledge and these are publicly testable ideas. And then who's the public that gets to test them is an important part of this training of who the scientists are. But that's the part that's about, that's not reducible to the individual who is testing it. It's not unique to the individual. 
ostensibly the claim is that any individual with the same access to the same information and technology could test the same hypothesis and then see if you get the same answers or not. So I think with regard to theories, it's really important to understand that there are been in contention, that there are diversity of them, and that you might want to think about what they mean for the kinds of factors that you want to study and the phenomena that you want to study and what the objectives are of what you're studying. And so is it appropriate to think of a theory as being valid or invalid? Or can you test whether or not a theory is appropriate? Or is it really a way of framing the way that we think about Well, it's about the fundamental it's the fundamental um, causal phenomena that are at play. And if it's and if it's inventing causal phenomena out of whole cloth that don't exist after being tested repeatedly, then the theory goes away and it can be refuted. So, the, so what matters are what the causal processes are that are core to the theory and how it's formulated of how it's trying to explain the phenomena within its domain. There have been theories in, in health that have been completely refuted and because the causal phenomena don't work that way. So we can, in fact, determine whether or not a theory is is invalid. I mean, are there theories that you would say have really stood the test of time versus other ones that you would say, you know, really kind of fallen away? In broad terms, very broad terms, there has been an awareness since people started writing things down on pieces of paper, such as Egyptian papyri, that health is distributed differently in societies and it differs by people's social position. And that's what, how that gets articulated into a theory has really varied over the centuries, over the millennia. But that's a pretty robust observation. And that's an robust, robust observation that a lot of people have theorized a lot about. So that is not a theory per se, but it is something that is part of the fodder for theories that have continually been developed over time to try to understand this kind of phenomenon and explanation. In terms of other theories about specific disease mechanisms, that's where biology is endlessly wondrous. And people keep learning more. You know, 20 years ago, if you said microbiome, people would say, what? Mm-hmm. And now that becomes something that becomes important to theorize in relation to many different kinds of outcomes, not just things that relate specifically to the gut. So that's a particular kind of, it's much more complicated than just calling it an exposure, but it's a phenomenon that's really probably going to be very relevant in ways that many people don't even understand. Mm-hmm won't because that's called science. You discover new things. You don't just endlessly rehash old things. But what's interesting is even in that research, the limited extent that I follow some of it is, you know, there's clearly profound social patterning of what microbiomes are within societies and across and between them. So that raises the inevitable questions as usual. Why? So that will take some good leads to follow. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit earlier about theory previously within epidemiology being something that was was talked about more and that has the ability to crunch data, you know, with ever more computing power has caused us to maybe move away from theory, but that in the early textbooks, you said it, it was at least talked about. So to go back to the question I asked you earlier, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to, in some ways, to start off epidemiology curriculums with theories of both disease causation and distribution and not to as at least we do in our program, is to really think about it in terms of the ways that you study disease. I mean, I absolutely think so. And I think that there are also very particular epidemiologic concepts that come from population health. Understanding, you know, the, I mean, it's all the rage now to be talking about herd immunity, but 
and it's interesting to think about why, and that applies to not only people, but cows, which is where the term came from, and a few other things. But absolutely it does, and, and it's really important, I think, for any science, not just epidemiology, to have an understanding of its history, so that you don't just come up with a simplistic tale of ever greater progress, because you lose good ideas, they get put aside, they get suppressed, they may be brought back. For example, ideas about being, quote unquote, in some sense, imbalance, it means many, many different things in different kinds of theories, but this idea that how people are in their societies and in relation to their larger ecological world around them matters a lot. Those are very old ideas and they're very current ideas in a lot of particularly indigenous theories and others that are worth knowing. So knowing the history, knowing what the debates and contention are, so that you understand that it's actually completely usual to have some sharp disputation as people take some very different stances on trying to understand the etiology and the distribution of a particular outcome, that that's par for the course. And understanding why does it get so charged around particularly understanding the societal patterning of health. I was just reading, the, I mean, the latest issue of ISIS just came out, which is a history of science journal that's on pedagogy and was talking about a course that's paired between a historian and a biologist that's on about race and genetics. And they go through a lot of the, the complicated histories of, of looking at that, including the horrific histories of eugenics and scientific racism, and understanding that there are different people involved in these debates at different times, and that there were debates. There were debates between the neogenesists and then the ones that in the 1920s and 30s that were upholding ideas of racial distinction and superiority and using that to explain health. And that was the dominant mode of thought. And then there were the people that were coming up with evidence to the contrary. So I think learning that and learning that history helps one understand better one's positioning in one's own time and understand where ideas come from and why are some dominant and others not. And so the, the last thing I really wanted to ask you about, and this is something that your book got me thinking about and it's worked its way into my teaching, is that the idea that, at least in terms of the way many people, many textbooks will define epidemiology, is talks about the distribution and determinants of disease. And we generally talk about those as if those are two completely independent things that one almost has, it's almost as if one has nothing to do with the other. And it seems to me what your book really put into focus for me was the idea that these are, of course, not in any way independent. And in fact, that if you were to only focus on disease causation, the interventions, particularly if you're focused on a biomedical model, are probably going to lead to worsening distributions of, of health equality. And I'm, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that and whether that is, you think that that is something that we have lost focus on. I think that there is, I mean, I do believe that there is a much more greater awareness in the field around health inequities and language to the effect of social determinants of health in some mm -hmm. way. It may be seen as that's something that some people might be interested in and others are free to ignore, as opposed to being fundamental to anything we do because we happen to be people. And therefore, we are simultaneously social beings in our societies as well as biological organisms. It's not like you're one one day and one the other. They tend to go together. And, um, and that matters for one's health and the health of one's social group. And again, thinking always as an epidemiologist in distributional terms. So if I say a social group, it does not mean everybody in that group has the same health profile. It means that risks are differentially distributed. And that's really important because people want to think in these simplistic little blocks 
that everybody, if they're group A, then they all have the same value. And that's not true. <laughs> the question is where, what's the distribution of group A versus what's the distribution of group B with regard to different kinds of exposures and outcomes. And so I think that in epidemiology, it's hard to generalize about where the field is. But for example, there's a very different frame in Latin America for Latin American social epidemiology, uh, critical public health, collective health, critical epidemiology. It's called lots of different things. And in fact, the next book my series, which is about to come out in January, January or February, is by one of the leading epidemiologists in Ecuador, Jaime Braille, which is about critical epidemiology and the people's health. And that brings a completely different, very theoretical framework, which is more common in many of the different Latin American countries compared to the U.S. There's a real schism between the Spanish and Portuguese epidemiologic literature and the English literature on ways of framing and looking at population health and health inequities. And so I think that it's often framed in the United States, at least, that epidemiology is that which happens in English language journals. And I think that's a narrow view, given the complexity of the world that we live in. I do as well. I think that's something that we, we definitely neglect. Well, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. This has been, it's been really enlightening for me, and I appreciate you, you coming on to talk with us. Thank you for having me.